So this evening, um, I was reflecting yesterday about what to talk about, and um, I was uh, I was actually on a bike ride, funnily enough, and I was watching my mind, as you do, uh, well, as I do, <laughs> um, when we don't have much to do. It's like driving, you know, like you let the mind sort of ramble a little bit. And I was noticing that I had a lot of views about things, just like kind of everything really. Like I'd be cycling past some construction site, you know, I was down in the headlands and they were putting this bridge over this footpath and, and I just had a lot of views about like, why are they doing that and why that kind of bridge and why is it so big and what, why are they doing that, why are they prioritizing that over there and who are they anyway? And, and I just thought, wow, this is a lot of views. You know, they're just putting a bridge over a little stream, like what's the problem here? And I, started, I just I started to track my mind, you know, and I'm biking and I'm passing people and cars and drivers and I'm judging and you know, having views about people's driving and people's clothing and <laughs> other bikers. And I'm like, well, this is a lot of views. This is really a lot of views. And, and so I, and I just kept tracking and, you know, watching the news or listening to the news or just, and then I started to see, wow, it's not just me. <laughs> There's a lot of views out there, a lot of views and opinions about everything. You know, as many people as there are, there is, you know, multiply that with the amount of views, and no wonder we have trouble talking to each other, you know, or agreeing about anything, because we have a lot of views. Not only do you have a lot of views, we have a lot of attachment to our point of view. We have a lot of investment and preference and bias and holding on to, to what we think is right. Um, anybody else notice that? Am I on the right planet over here? So, um, so I started thinking, well, what, what, what is this in the context of the Buddha's teaching? This is always a fun exploration for me, is looking at my own experience and then going, well, how does this fit into what I know from teaching and practice and, and, and the Buddhist understanding and um, so one of the contexts for th this exploration is um, the Buddha gave a teaching on um, the, the different kinds of attachments that cause us suffering. So as, as you may have often heard that the Buddha said that the way that our mind attaches to things is really one of the sources of our, of our distress, of our stress and anguish. And he talked about four main domains where we hold on a lot. So can you guess what the four are? And don't guess, don't shout out if you know the list, but if you don't just, what do you think the four main ways that we hold on, the places we hold on? Let's see if you guess. So, anybody just shout out randomly? Where do you hold on? <laughs> Relationships, mm-hmm, yeah. Thinking. Thinking, the mind, uh-huh. Possessions, stuff, right, yes, so this is the first one. Material, sense, well, it was actually sense pleasures, but it involves stuff, material, anything in the material realm. Mm -hmm. So what else? Ambition. Identification with? Okay, so self-identity, yeah, so that's one. He said that was the most, most poignant one for causing suffering. So two more. 
life, political ideas. So we're on the right. So, so views, views and opinions is the third. And the fourth is really obscure. Um, so I doubt you'll get it. Huh? Not wanting to change, that could, that's definitely true. I mean, there's, there's actually like 40,000 really, but we're focusing on four. Uh, the last one is attachment to rites and rituals um, as ends in themselves, which means, and I'll talk about this, I'm going to go, I'm going to spend an evening on each of these four, so tonight I'm going to focus on views. Um, right, attachment to rites and rituals is the way that, um, okay, it comes out of, without going into a long discourse. Um, it, it came out of the context of the time of the Buddha where people believed that by offering rituals of fire and light and whatnot, that would actually lead to emancipation. And in his experience, it didn't. So uh, relying on rituals, and it could be even relying on meditation as um, uh, believing that by doing something uh, in a certain way will lead to realization. So that one's more subtle. Um, so tonight I want to focus on, on our attachment to views and opinions and beliefs and ideas. So um, this is a, a bad Buddhist joke. Why don't Buddhists vacuum in the corners? Because they don't have attachments. I told you it was bad. <laughs> but it's kind of cute, right? It's a, a little, you know, something. You have to think about it. So this is from George Bush. I don't usually quote George too much in my Dharma talks. Um, anyhow. Uh, he says, I have opinions of my own, strong opinions, but I don't always agree with them. <laughs> so, there you go. I'll not pa- I won't pass comment on that. So as I'm talking, um, you know, as any any teachings that are offered in the Buddhist context are really offered as an invitation. It, it might sound like there's a lot of views and opinions coming from up here, but um, actually these are just offerings for you to explore. And so uh, pay attention to your own inner experience and your mind as you're listening and to see if your own views and opinions about this subject or other subjects come up and see what happens when, when that happens. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, um, we have a lot of views about pretty much everything. Think about, try and think about something you don't have a view about. Yeah. And we usually have a strong opinion, view, idea, attachment to those. Think about when you're sitting in meditation and you're having arguments with yourself or with some, usually with somebody else. Right? It's often about a point of view. Right? You're, you're arguing with your partner in your head or your boss or your friend or your, someone in your family. And there's some, there's some budding of heads around a view that, you, that of course, they're wrong. 
and you're proving to them with a very, you know, lock-solid argument why they're wrong. So I often uh, say this phrase that I love from Bankai, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, where the Zen master says, uh, don't side with yourself. So this really applies to views. Don't side with yourself. What would it be to not side with your view? Step outside of the, the, the cloister of your own positioning and to hold it lightly. Yeah. So, so and we're exploring views tonight, but really we're exploring it in the context of attachment because that's, that's where we put the blinders on. When we get attached to something, it obscures our vision. We get tight, we get contracted, we get rigid, we get oppositional, we create separation. Yeah. So views, just like anything, isn't in- inherently good or bad in itself, but how we relate to it is what we're looking at. So, you know, we live in a, I don't know if this has always been true, it seems very true. We're living in a culture that's very divided. We're living in a political system that's very divided. Um, and there's a lot of strong views. You know, listen to any radio, any talk radio, let's put the TV on, listen to the news. And there's a lot of very strong views. So that you have whole channels, you know, you have Fox and MSNBC, and you have a whole, you know, media empires devoted to a view. Yeah. It's reflective of a certain political ideology, right? And so we have the, we have the, the major two ideologies in this country that are uh, very strongly attached to their view and so entrenched that there's no dialogue possible. So the country's you know, leadership is faltering because, because of the strength of the attachment to the views. You know, what would be, you know, what would be to have a dialogue between some folks <coughs> occupying Wall Street and some tea baggers? And they both said, you know, I'm going to really hold my position lightly and just really explore not knowing and really be curious about understanding your point of view. What would that be like to have a political... Imagine that happening in the Senate, you know, around what to do with Medicare or with um, bailing out of banks or funding the Pentagon. What would it be to have a political dialogue where people actually weren't so entrenched in their views that would actually be conversation? And it's no better necessarily in the spiritual world. If you look at the history of religions for the last few thousand years, right, and the conflicts yeah, between different religions or the conflicts within each tradition, yeah, the jihadists and the Christians or whatever, you know, either you take any point of view, any religious system, and then we'll have an ideology and there'll be an attachment to the ideology. Yeah. You know, so you have the Buddha teaching letting go of attachment to views, and then you have a few thousand years of, of tradition. And what happens? People get very attached to the tradition, to their particular Buddhist point of view. Yeah, there's a gazillion schools of Buddhism, and they have different views and ideas about the most beneficial way to attain awakening and free all beings. And they're often the loggerheads about it. No, this way, no, that way, no. We'll free them quicker. No, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you take a step back, it's very silly. But, in the, if, but it's actually very real. You know, there's, there's, there's traditions in 
Tibet and Burma, they don't talk to each other. They don't even let each other into their monasteries. You know, there's like a hair, you know, hair thickness of difference, and there's a whole mountain of sameness, and that that attachment to that difference creates a schism. It's very common. So there's a cartoon in the New Yorker recently after um, another view about the about um, the end of the world. Uh, what's that called in biblical? Apocalypse. Apocalypse. Right. So uh, that teacher, I think it was a local teacher, who was claiming the apocalypse was coming and a few months ago now in the summer, and apparently didn't. <laughs> as far as I can tell, I don't know. Maybe it did, but I missed it. Um, so there's a, there's a there's a cartoon in the New Yorker. So the guy with his sackcloth and his sign, and the sign says, <laughs> "The end was near." <laughs> <laughs> and if we look at history, you know, if we look at empires, philosophical systems, from Socrates onwards, the same thing. There's there's a lot of attachment to views. And, and a lot of power in views. So for many, many centuries, there was an idea that the world was flat, stop people sailing very far out from land because the fear of falling off into the <coughs> abyss, and there's the wonderful medieval paintings, Renaissance paintings about that very notion of people falling off, off the edge of the world, and it was very real. Right? So we live in, in a worldview today, which in 200 years ago, Really, they believed that? How weird. They believed that email was going to make them happy? Like, how weird is that? <laughs> you know, they spent all their time looking at these screens, you know? <laughs> so that was, that, that was like, tech, that was in improvement in human culture. You know? So, you know, if I think about uh, uh, Descartes' maxim, I think, therefore I am separating mind and body, separating body and earth, separating body and spirit, and the, the industrial revolution that came out of that, splitting in a way, and that belief that man is separate, humans are separate from the earth, and that we can have dominion over the earth. Think about that view, the biblical view that, that man is supposed to have dominion over the earth, and therefore we can do with the earth what we like. And look at the consequences of that. We have ecological catastrophe on our hands everywhere we look because of a certain view that it's okay to do that. So um, the Buddha had a very uh, different take on views and so much so that it often frustrated uh, his contemporaries and uh, spiritual seekers who came and asked him because that's what you go and do. You go, you go check out just like in Marin or in the Bay Area, you go check out spiritual teachers and there's usually one popping up every few days. And it was the same at that time, it was a hotbed of spiritual inquiry. And so people would, you know, wanderers would go around checking out teachers, asking them questions, doing some deep inquiry. And basically would be checking out their views, their views about the world and life and death and spirit. And uh, there'd be lots of interesting debates. And uh, from what I can gather in the text that the Buddha uh, a lot of the time refused to engage in that kind of debate. 
people would ask him questions and he would often remain silent. And then his attendant or his disciples would say, how come he didn't say anything? You, you're happy to talk about that ad nauseum when just to us. And, <laughs> and uh, he would say, well, if I, if I said this, they would think one thing. If I said that, they would think another thing. And it, all it would do would just affirm or disaffirm a point of view. It would just strengthen the, a certain belief system. It wouldn't actually change them. It just would strengthen the view. And does that really lead to any greater well-being or happiness? No, it just, it just increases attachment to view. So uh, there's one uh, text, piece of text that I pulled out um, where this um, seeker called Vachagota, who, who I, I noticed crops up in a few different texts, who's has a lot of questions to ask the Buddha. Actually, he was the person who was asking that question I just talked about earlier, and the Buddha refused to answer. But in this, in this conversation, they have a dialogue. And so he's, and he's asking the Buddha about the common philosophical views at the time. So he's asking, is, is the cosmos, is the universe eternal? Or is it finite? Or is it infinite? Is the soul and the body the same? Kind of like what Descartes was exploring. Is the soul one thing and the body another? After a Buddha dies, do they, do they live? Do they die? Do they neither live nor die? Do they both die and live? Um, and the Buddha says, um, basically, asking those questions do not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to calm, to peace, to full awakening and unbinding. So I'm not really going to answer them. He said, those questions don't really apply. And then he said, you know, if you take a position, whether the, the cosmos is infinite or finite or eternal or not eternal, that position, this is a common phrase he uses, would be a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views, accompanied by suffering, distress, despair, and fever. does not lead to disenchantment, peace, and freedom. So therefore, I'm not going to take a position. I'm not going to engage in the dialogue. So he leaves him uncertain. And then the wanderer kind of walks off, not very contented. So um, basically, the, the point of that, that conversation, that dialogue, is to reflect back the way the mind is always looking for certainty, is always looking for, this is how it is. This is right, this is wrong, this is black, this is white. This is good, this is bad. And you know, there are many times where the Buddha would, would talk in those terms, but in this teaching, he's asking this person, asking us to, to, to look at how we fixate on the mind wanting to know, needing to know, needing certainty, which doesn't necessarily lead to a freedom and spaciousness of mind. It leads to a, can lead to a constriction. He said, the Dharma, the teachings are taught for the elimination of all positions, biases, inclinations, and obsessions. For the ending of those is peace and freedom. So I've noticed um, over the years in my own practice that um, uh, I hold views a lot more lightly. It's harder for me to engage very vehemently in a political discussion or a spiritual discussion about something because mostly what I come to is who knows? 
Who knows? Who knows if this is right or wrong or good or bad? It's hard to know in the moment. Can we know whether something is really good or bad in the moment? If we have a 10-year view, we might have a different vantage point, we have a different perspective on it. So one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, um, has a similar position when he's asked, I notice when he's asked questions these days, mostly the answer will be, who knows? We just don't know a lot of the time what's what, what's what. So notice how that is for you to hear that. Because you might go, well, I'm not sure about that. That's just a point of view. <laughs> I like to know what's going on. But what I also notice about the, 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 there's a certain kind of inner spaciousness. When we don't hold to view so fixedly, there's a lot of space because there's not so, there's not so much a, a positioning. Right? If there's a positioning, there's a stasis, and the stasis is, um, <coughs> is more brittle. It's less fluid and therefore breakable. So there's a great story um, from the monastery of Achan Chah, Jack Cornfield's teacher, um, where uh, there, were used, there was a nun who practiced with Achan. She was a Buddhist nun, and then she converted to Christianity. And she would come back to the monastery frequently and harass the Buddhist monks and nuns and tell them that they were going to go to hell <laughs> and try to convert them and, you know, try to get them to see the light. And people complained, and the monks and the Western monks would complain, well, how come you let this woman in? You know, she just caused all this furore, and she's so aggressive. And, um, what, you know, surely you, you must have a you know, point of view about that, you know. And, and after a lot, of, and he refused, and he, he would basically let things just kind of work themselves out. But when he was pressed one point, he said, um, who knows, maybe she's right. <laughs> Maybe we're all going to hell. <laughs> That's really holding lightly your position. So who knows? Maybe she's right. So in the Zen tradition, there's a lot of um, uh, emphasis given on this, this perspective of not knowing. Beginner's mind empty mind, not knowing mind. So Kusang Sanim, who was a great Zen teacher, would, would often ask his students very challenging <coughs> questions. And um, uh, we're encouraged to really live in this, this, this place of don't know mind, don't know mind, don't know mind where we cease to grip onto a particular point of view and hold out in the uncertainty. Maybe, maybe not. The third Zen patriarch, uh, in a beautiful text, he starts off by saying, if you wish to know the truth, then cease to cherish opinions. Cease to cherish opinions of, of what you think is right and wrong, for or against anything. Set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. So um, there's a lovely Zen story uh, 
by about a um, teacher called Hakwin, who was an amazing uh, practitioner and awakened uh, being and founder of a lineage, a Zen lineage. And um, the story goes that he was living in a village. He was living up in, in, in a monastery near a village. And uh, one of the uh, young girls from, uh, from the fishing village got pregnant. And uh, she was mortified and she was, wasn't married. And um, uh, when she gave birth, she put the blame of, uh, onto this monk, Hakwin, and said he was the father and therefore he should take care of the baby. So the villagers all turned against him, believed her story, and they took the baby up to the monastery and said, this is yours, you need to look after it. And he just said, hmm, ah, so. Took the baby in, looked after the baby for a long time. At some point in time, the, the girl was so mortified by having falsely accused this really highly esteemed uh, Zen teacher that she eventually confessed it was a local man that she'd uh, had the baby with. And so they got together with the villagers, and the villagers said, well, we should go take the baby back. So they went up to the monastery and apologized profusely to Hakwin and he handed the baby over and he just said, ah, so. Neither good nor bad, neither right nor wrong, just this is what is. And was very equanimous with the whole thing. So the story goes. There's another story that you may know um, that speaks to this a little more, is um, the story of uh, a couple of farmers, neighbors, uh, a little competitive with each other, and uh, one farmer has a young, healthy son, and the other one doesn't, and is a little envious of uh, the situation. And they're chatting one day, and one farmer says to the other, oh, you're so lucky to have this young son, he's so healthy, he's, when he grows up, he's going to help you with the farm and take care of things. And, and the, the wise farmer says, oh, that's so, we'll see, who knows, who knows. And then later, um, uh, the young man finds a horse and uh, able to tame the horse, brings it onto the farm. And again, the farmer, the jealous farmer comes out and says, oh, you're so lucky, now you have a horse, you'll be able to plow your crops, you'll have more bounty, this is great news, you and your son will have great blessings. And the farmer says, oh, maybe, maybe we'll see. And then a few weeks later, um, the young man is riding on the horse and falls off and breaks his leg. And the farmer comes and says, oh, it's, I'm so sorry to hear about your, your son. It's terrible news. He fell off his horse. He won't be able to help you on the farm. That's really bad. I'm sorry. Can I help? And the wise farmer says, hmm, maybe. Who knows? We'll see. And a few weeks later, the army come along looking for conscripts. And they're gathering up all the young men in the villages. And they come across to the farmer and they see that his young son has is, is, uh, got a broken leg and they pass on by to the next village. And the farmer comes over and says, oh, you're so lucky, your son had a broken leg, he didn't get called into the army, this is such good news. Of course, the wise farmer says, ah, so, who knows? So we never know. We never know in the moment what's, what's what. Well, sometimes we do. So I don't want to say that there's no clarity, there's no knowing, there's no intuition, because there is as much of that. And hopefully as we develop mindfulness and presence and awareness and discernment, we get clearer about what's what. But again, I'm pointing to the 
the place where we get tight and constricted around and then things ossify around a certain point of view, around a certain opinion. So thinking about your own views, we all carry around very strong views. We have creation views, we have spiritual views. We have like a central views about what what guides us in our lives. So what would be a guiding principle for you, a guiding view? And a lot of these, t- a lot of times, these views are unconscious, they're, but they're very powerful motivators. Yeah. So maybe you have a view about money. Anybody have a view about money? <laughs> I don't have enough. I've got too much. Very unusual. <laughs> Some people. I know what to do with it. I don't. I feel guilty about having so much. Or I need to have more. If I have this much, when I retire, then I will be able to relax. Yeah. We have very strong views about money and sufficiency and what's sufficient, what what's secure, which of course is completely up for grabs because as we've seen in the last few years, the markets go up and down and 401ks get wiped out and jobs get wiped out and boom, what we thought to be true is now not, no longer true. So look at your views around money, around, around livelihood, what kind of views you have about your work, views about relationship. <coughs> views about happiness, what you think will make you happy. Right, we have a lot of views about that. Okay. The Buddha said the reason he taught his teaching was because people thought they knew what made them happy, but actually made them less happy, like holding on to things, believing things won't change. So it's useful to kind of just reflect, well, what kind of views am I living my life out by? I need to do more. I need to have as many experiences as I can before I die. That's a common view. What are your spiritual views? Enlightenment's not for me, it's, forget it, this lifetime. Or enlightenment's possible. Or I want to learn how to open my heart. Or what, what, what view guides your practice? I can meditate or I can't meditate. If I meditate enough, I'll get enlightened. Is that a view you have? If I do X, Y, and Z, I'll get enlightened. Do people believe awakening is possible? And how many people believe awakening is possible? Okay, so some, maybe a quarter. Uh, in general. <laughs> how many people feel like awakening is possible for you in this lifetime? Numbers went down a little bit, okay. <laughs> it's okay. But it's nice you think awakening's gonna happen for other people, that's very benevolent of you. And then there's lots of new age views, very strong. I hear this a lot, because I hang out, I live in Marin, I hang out in Marin, and, you know, I'm part of that view cycle, laundry, mach- laundry mat. 
New Age laundromat. So one of the views I hear a lot is, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good. I just lost my job, my partner left, and, uh, and the dog's sick. Oh, it's all good. Really? Okay. Or another popular one is, it's all going to work out. You know, it's all going to work out. At the end, you die. That's how it's all going to work out. <laughs> we lose everything, we get old, sick, and die. That's how it works out, right, is the truth, which may be a good thing, depending on your point of view. You know, it's a lot of burden having all this stuff and bodies and things, but... Um, so that's a common view. Or another common view is, oh, it's just their karma. You know, you hear about some horrible earthquake <coughs> tragedy or something in Sudan or Western Africa or somewhere, and oh, it's just that karma. It's a view, it's an interesting view. It, it, it relieves us of responsibility, <laughs> apparently. Um, or oh, another popular one, I had this happen to me in a very painful way. I was on, I was, I was on, I was getting some body, I was getting a cranial sacral session, and I was working on some very deep early trauma, very painful, very, very painful. Mm. And I, I had this the first session I had with this person, and I was very upset. And they said, oh, well, you, you called this in. You, you, you invited this in. I'm like, wow, that's a really interesting point of view. <laughs> really? When I was one year old, I called this in? Okay, I'll take your word for it, but... Um, or, um, you know, the movie The Secret. Had lots of views in that. I'm not taking a position either on one way or the other. Um, you can create your own reality, um, is another popular, or we do create our own reality. Um, it's another point of view. So, um, just to know what kind of views there are jumbling around in there, which ones you agree with, which ones you disagree with. Um, again, not, not to take a position, but to just be curious, oh, w- which ones, which ones strike home? Which ones like, oh no, that's, that's, that's that doesn't feel true. Which ones propel you to action? So there's a great story about um, conflicting spiritual views. Uh, so there's this in China. So there's a lot of conflict between the Confucian scholars and the Taoist sages, two very different traditions. Um, and so there's a story of these Confucian scholars hear about this, this uh, wild Taoist sage living up in the mountains in their little hut. And so they one day go up with their you know, texts and to have a debate and probably to disprove the validity of this wild yogin's perspective on things. <laughs> and um, much to their surprise, when they get to his cabin, they see that he's meditating naked in the middle of the, his little hut. So they walk in, and they're all shocked, and they're giving them their point of, giving him their point of view about this and that, and and they say, "Well, what do you have to say?" And he says, "Well, the earth is my body. This hut are my clothes. No, yes, uh, no." <laughs> <laughs> the world is my body this hut is my underpants what are you doing in my underpants 
<laughs> and he kicks them out. <laughs> so. So another interesting duality, and this happens in Buddhist uh, teaching. So there's a point of view where um, to attain Buddhahood, you have to eradicate every kind of poison and defilement in the body and the mind. It's a very common view. But there's an equally opposing view that you already have Buddha nature, that you're already awakened, <coughs> awakening itself, and that you just have to realize that to see through the obscurations, but your very nature is awakening itself. It's a very different perspective. The, the, the outcome may actually be the same, and the pr- but the practices are very different, and the views are very different. So often there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding in spiritual traditions because an awakened teacher will give a lot of skillful means, will give a lot of tools and techniques and methodologies and paths and perspectives and meditations, right, to help because everybody needs something slightly different according to their you know, personality or where they are in their lives, right? So teacher lives long enough, he'll give a lot of different directions. And he might say the very opposite, to, might, might say two very contradictory things to people. So then, and then the whole schools develop around those teachings. And then they stop talking to each other and they build walls and they have wars and all kinds of things. So when I was in India practicing, uh, mostly doing, I, 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 had a, I had a Buddhist teacher and I had an Advaita Vedanta teacher. And um, uh, the teachers I was studying with saw the unity of those traditions, but the followers of those teachers didn't see the unity, they saw the disunity. And so, one, the, the, the Buddhist mm, scene that I was in was mostly into practicing meditation, and the Advaita Vedanta scene uh, looked upon meditation as, as a distraction and as a hindrance to awakening. And so there was this c- constant combat, this Dharma combat. Oh, you're meditating? That's, so, that's such a you know, lower thing to do. <laughs> you clearly can't see the truth. The big picture. So um, I've been immersed in many of these uh, streams where there's a lot of views and a lot of opinions, and and it's very painful to actually be. There's a lot of schisms and uh, conflict. So this is what Byron Katie has to say about views. When people believe their thoughts, people divide reality into opposites. They think that only certain things are beautiful, but to a clear mind, everything in the world is beautiful in its own way. Only by believing your thoughts can you make the real unreal. If you don't separate reality into categories by naming it and believing that names are real, how can you reject anything or believe that one thing is of less value than another? The mind's job is to prove that what it thinks is true, and it does this by judging and comparing this to that. What good is a this to the mind if it can't prove it with a that? Without proof, how can a this or that exist? For example, if you think that only Mozart is beautiful, then there's no room in your world for rap. You're entitled to your opinion, of course, but other people think that rap is where it's at. How do you react when you believe that rap is ugly? You grit your teeth when you hear it, 
and when you have to listen, maybe your parent or a grandparent, you're in a torture chamber. I love that when mind is understood, there's room for rap as well as Mozart. I don't hear anything as noise. To me, a car alarm is as beautiful as a bird singing. It's all the sound of God. By its very nature, the mind is infinite. So that's a very spacious view of holding seeming opposites. Here's another story. This is um, from the Buddha's time. So once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise, likewise with his children. He loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked the Buddha how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the, rail the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, Sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. Then what's the good of all your teaching? My teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th. What's that? asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we think we shouldn't have any problems, whereas we don't think that we should have problems. Although we may know it, we all have deep-seated belief that if we practice long and hard enough, our problems will disappear. So that's a strong view. We shouldn't have any problems. Anybody have that view? If I just get fixed this and this and this, and it'll all go away, and I'll all just be, you know, I'll just have a great meditation, and I'll just cruise. Yeah, I just must be doing something wrong in my meditation practice that it's not kind of happening right. So then we have the views, the old views from, from like way back when, they're so hidden we can't remember the source, like views from childhood, views from our conditioning, views from our parents, views from our school teachers. Johnny is a nice boy, but hangs out with the wrong people. Mm -hmm. you know, or the messages, the tapes that we have, you know, the, the judging tapes. I'm going to talk more about the self-views in, in another talk. But we have a lot of views about ourselves, that if we ask other people, they would think they're pretty inaccurate. You know? if, if we all shout out, one of, our, one of our views about ourselves. Anybody like to do that? Share a view about yourself? <laughs> no, we'd be horrified. And everybody would disagree with you. They'd be like, that's not, that's, I don't think that's true. You're not a mean person. You're not a horrible person. You're not hopeless. You, you, I think you're going to get your life together. <laughs> and then we can have views that are really transformative, really empowering, really opening, really deepening of our lives and our hearts. So um, I think I'd like to read this piece from George Bernard Shaw, who uh, spoke a lot about dedicating his life, having a bigger vision for our life and our work in the world. And he says, I am of the opinion, opinion that my life belongs to the whole community and as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I love. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me. 
It is a sort of splendid torch which I have got to hold up for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. Now that's a view worth holding on to. <laughs> or at least reflecting on. Yeah. What would it be to think about one's life as a sort of splendid torch which I've got to hold up for a moment until I, I want it to burn as bright as possible before handing it on to future generations. What a beautiful way of living. So, um, so I'm curious about your views and opinions and what this is triggering or stirring or um, uh, what, what kind of views that, that, you've, that, that you've come across, you feel in yourself. Anyone like to say, like what's, what, what, yes? Uh, one thing occurred to me is that uh, a lot of uh, my views are views that I uh, take has to do with my parents' views. Mm. Um, I think this, this maybe happens a lot. And, and it's and in a way, it's more like honoring your parents. You take their views because if you didn't, you'd be... Uh, Beaten. <laughs> well, going against, somehow you would be disrespecting them if you don't take their... You know, I, I think about that, and I think a lot of religions are passed from one generation to the other uh, with that, that in mind. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you take the religion of your parents because they you know, yep. keep the thing going. Yep. So, and same thing with politics. You're yep. Democrat because your parents are mm-hmm. Democrat. Yeah. So the comments about really being loyal to our parents' views, the, how, many, how many of our views come from our parents' views about family or politics or whatever, in a certain sense of loyalty or fear. Um, so that's an, also an interesting reflection, to see where your views come from. We, we like to think of our mind as like completely original and independent. Yeah? There's nothing original and independent <laughs> except what comes out of essence, what comes out of true nature, what comes out of the mystery. Everything else we've read, we've borrowed, we've heard, it's all 15th hand. Right? We, all, we, it's like, uh, we go to the thrift store for our views, you know, the and pick up lots of second-hand views, yeah? So unless it comes from the immediacy of our direct experience, then it's a view, it's an idea based on the past, based on memory, based on thought. So to reflect on where, where you know, if you have a strong view, where did it come from? How come, the, how, how did they get in there? You know? Other comments? Yes, we get a mic here? There's a um, second row, lady in black. You on the mic? Uh, you can you shout? Well, we all got to no, That's good. That's okay. You can just be. Um, I noticed I was reading an article on uh, foie gras the other day. Uh-huh. And um, it caused me such consternation and anger because of the hurt that's caused in that process. Mm. Can you talk in the mic? It's difficult to hear. I have the mic in front of me. You got to put it up closer to your high school phone. I was reading an article on foie gras the other day where they force feed ducks in order to create this thing Mm. and the conditions under which these animals live. And I had extremely strong views in reaction to this. So when you see 
hurt being caused like this, that kind of view seems to me quite valid. So back to my point about it's not so much the view, but it's about how you hold the view. So, so, your, so your suggestion in terms of dealing with that. So, um, well, there's a lot of different things to say about that. Um, I think it's important uh, to also, uh, when we're talking about non-attachment, I think it's hard to be, it's hard to have non-attachment without having equanimity. So, um, for sure, there's, there's the, something like that. There's, there's innumerable things in the world that, that, are, in, that are horrendous suffering, right? Including the force feeding of ducks for foie gras. And we can have a very clear ethical point of view about that. Right? And then there's, uh, the 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 point that I'm trying to get across tonight is what happens in your mind in relationship to that view and those people who do that. Well, my reaction was to feel the anguish mm-hmm. of these animals mm-hmm. being, you know, that's what horrified me so much mm-hmm. is to feel that pain Mm -hmm. yeah and then to try and how how can people do this kind of thing or you know any number of things that we do to one another Mm -hmm. and to not be present to the pain yeah so um so the the teaching in the eightfold path which this is part a part of is understanding wise view out of wise view comes wise action, actually comes wise motivation. So for you, there's that clarity leads to compassion and maybe leads to some action. Right? So we can allow our view to inform our, our behavior. The place where we have to watch is where the attachment creates us and them, creates separation, creates opposition, creates... Uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it, with the teaching with equanimity and view, it's a fine line between equanimity is accepting the reality that this happens. The foie gras happens. Foie gras is probably not going away in our lifetime. That is the truth of it. And that's a very painful truth to hold if you're feeling the, the pain that is caused in that. right? And that still may lead you to start a campaign against foie gras in your local supermarket, you know. So, but to see where the difference between the attachment to the view creates suffering in you because of the contraction, the tightness, the oppositional nature of that, versus holding the view and letting that inform wise action. Does that make sense? Somewhat. Somewhat. I mean, I extend that to you can yeah, say that there anything. I- any number of things that you see, you know, mm-hmm. dur- happen during war or yeah. Um, and I don't know how you hold that, 
you know, when you see these kinds of things happening, hold mm -hmm. that in equanimity. Well, holding in equanimity means holding it in balance, which means holding it, meeting the truth of it. Equanimity is an extension of mindfulness practice, which is we come to meet the truth of what is. So, yeah, war happens. To the extent that there's greed and hatred in this human in human beings, there's going to be war. That's how it is. How it's always, how it has been for the last how many millennia. So, equanimity is not fighting with the reality of what's true in the moment. So what's true is there's war. There's a lot of war. There's a lot of greed and hatred, a lot of violence and oppression. That's true. How we respond to that is, is, is completely... Mm, how we respond to that is, is, um, is really more the important question. So, but without the equanimity, we're just reacting to that out of anger and hatred. We're actually just acting, we're continuing the, 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 the fuel, the stream of anger and hatred. So you can go on lots of peace protests that are really angry and full of hatred. Yeah? Or you can go on peace protests that are actually embodying some quality of peace. So, you know, again, it's, I would say that's coming out of it's not just about attachment to view, but it's part of it. It's a view that's saying, this shouldn't be happening. That is a, I would say, if there's any view with the word should in it, it's a wrong view. So that's always a good starter. This shouldn't be happening. Well, it is happening. I'd like it not to be happening, because I'd like be no beings to suffer. Well, that's great. But the truth is, that is what's happening. That's equanimity. Yeah. Which doesn't mean passivity, it just means welcoming the truth of it. You don't have to like it. So, yeah, we can extend this to anything in our lives. So that's why the, you know, in the Eightfold Path, the Buddha started with wise view. You know, I, I'm, taking a, I'm taking a... In the context of the, this teaching on attachment, I'm looking at... I've been mostly looking at attachment, not what is wise view? That's a whole subject in itself. A you know, wise view would be, would involve an understanding of interconnectedness, an understanding of non-harming. That's all wise view. Um, but I wanted to look at the way that we form our views, the way we hold onto our views, the way our views condition us, so that we don't necessarily take very close attention to. And with that, I am going to um, close for the evening. So thank you for listening to my views and opinions, <laughs> which I'm not very attached to. <laughs> um, and uh, Jack will be back next week with Pascal or Claire. And um, have a wonderful week. Enjoy the, these lovely wintry nights and drive safe drive right as you turn out of spirit rock be happy be well thank you thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate